Well, as I said, as we, we, we finished uh, the book of Acts a few weeks ago, and uh, before I'm gonna, I think I'm going to start our, our new study in James next year. And so um, in, in, in the meantime, last week and the next couple of weeks, I'll have some standalone sermons before we uh, begin James in the beginning of January. And so this Sunday, I thought we, we'd look at Psalm 33. Uh, Psalm 33, if you could open your Bibles to Psalm 33, and, uh, and let me read these 22 verses to you. Uh, it's kind of an acrostic. Uh, there's 22 uh, letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and you have 22 verses here. Um, they don't descend. They don't go in a descending order, but you have some kind of a semblance to the Hebrew alphabet. And, um, and so let me read uh, Psalm 33 for you. And if you could follow along, that would be uh, really helpful to you and, and myself. Um, Sing for joy in Yahweh, O, o righteous ones. Uh, praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to Yahweh with the lyre. Sing praises to him with the, with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a loud shout. For the word of Yahweh is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of Yahweh. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and, uh, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the, the waters of the sea as a, as a heap. He lays up the, the deeps and storehouses. Let all the earth fear Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was. He commanded and it, and it stood. Yahweh nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the thoughts of the people. The, the counsel of Yahweh stands forever. The thoughts of his heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh. The people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Yahweh looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men from the place of his habitation he gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth he who forms the hearts of them all he who understands all their works the king is not saved by a mighty army a warrior is not delivered by great strength a horse is a false hope for salvation nor does it provide escape to anyone by its great strength behold the eye of Yahweh is on those who fear him on those who Wait for his loving kindness to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul is patient for Yahweh. He is our, he is our help and our shield. He is our, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Yahweh, be upon us as we wait for you. It's just been in the past few years where my wife and I have been engaged in a, in a new sort of discussion, a discussion about re, uh, reasons. Since about the age of three or so, my, my son Paul often wants to know why he should do something when we ask him to do something. He asks questions like, Daddy, why do I need to brush my teeth? Mama, why do I need to wear clothes? Well, why do I need to wear a jacket? On the whole, my wife does a much better job thinking carefully and answering fully the, reason why, the reasons why he needs to do this or that. She's teaching me by example of how to, to, to be better at taking the time and thinking about, thinking about all the, the reasons why Paul should do something, even for the most basic things. Usually, I just have one reason that answers 
all the different kind of reasons Paul is looking for, because I told you so. But my my five-year-old's incessant curiosity to to learn the reasons for life's most essential responsibilities is many times simply a reflection of how human beings created in the image of God are, are wired naturally. Human beings need reasons to do virtually anything, but especially we need good reasons for doing the most important matters of life. Why do I need to attend school and get an education? Why should I pursue a career? Why should I be kind to people? Why should I get married and have children? Why, why should I obey God's word? The book of Psalms is, is a book full of reasons that answers the most important question in life. And it's this, why should I worship God? Psalm after psalm, God gives reason after reason why we should worship and praise him. For every different context and situation in life, the psalms give reasons after reason why we should praise the Lord. Why should I praise God when my enemies enemies are persecuting me? The psalm gives a reason. Why should I praise God in the morning? The, the psalm gives a reason. Why should I praise God when I'm in the desert, when I'm hungry and, I, and I'm thirsty? The, the psalms give us a reason. Why should I praise God when I'm afraid, when I'm worried, or when I'm depressed, or, or feel hopeless? The psalms give us a reason. And today's psalm focuses on the reasons to praise God, specifically when we're living in a society or a nation that has turned its back on God. Why should I praise God when everyone around me is godless? Why should I worship God when my government leaders are immoral and corrupt? Why should I praise God when the schools in the city I live in have become cesspools of sexual deviancy? We, we need good reasons in, in that kind of environment because that's when we're most tempted to be afraid. It's in those types of contexts when we're most attempted to want to, to run, to, to want to, to run away and hide. It's in those times and situations when we want to pick up our arms and, and fight back with all we have, tooth and nail, with weapons of human convention. This is, in fact, what is happening ever increasingly in, our, in, the, in the country we live in, increasingly on every level, in every sector of society, for every age group, we're, we're seeing a rise in blatant, in-your-face rebellion against God. It's in the stores we shop in. It's in the schools where we, we try to send our five- and six-year-olds to. It's on the television. It's on the radio. I was listening to a a major classical music channel on the radio the other day, and I couldn't believe the, the propaganda I was hearing about the, the fight for trans, transgender rights and acceptance. I'm thinking, my goodness, I just want to listen to some Beethoven. Our, our, our military commanders have turned their backs on God. Our teachers have turned their backs on God. Our doctors and medical schools, our government lawyers, our law schools, more and more seem to be collectively building a new Tower of Babel painted in rainbow colors, shaking their fist against God. So it's in this particular kind of context that that Psalm 33 gives us reasons to praise God. What do we do when the peoples we live amongst, what, when do, what do we do when the nations around us rage against the authority of God's word? Psalm 33 gives us a few reasons to worship God in a godless culture. In verses 1 to 3, we begin by considering God's call to a panoply of praise. Point number one, a call to a panoply of praise. 
In verses 1 through 3, there are, there are six different uh, calls for praise. We must never think that praising the Lord is just opening your mouth on Sunday with words accompanied by music. Verse 1 says that praising is first, is singing for joy in Yahweh. The, the particular joy we are to sing with is the, is the joy of forgiveness. If you notice, Psalm 33 doesn't have an, have an opening inscription, which is really quite rare for any of the psalms in the first, in the first um, 50 books of, of Book 1 of the Psalter. If Psalm 33 is a continuation of Psalm 32, however, it would explain the absence of an, of an opening introduction. And, and if you notice how Psalm 32 ends in verse 11, uh, you have the very same words that we find in the first three verses of Psalm 33. You see the words, Yahweh, righteous ones. You see the words, a shout, uh, a joy, upright. They're found at the end of Psalm 32, and they're, they're, they're found at the beginning of Psalm 33. There seems to be this connection there. And so the, the joy of Psalm 32 was the, was the joy of the forgiveness of sins. Look at Psalm 32. One and two, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account and whose spirit there is no deceit. The righteous ones, in verse 1, therefore, when, when, when in Psalm 33, when the psalmist says, Sing for joy in Yahweh, O righteous ones, um, this is not referring to people who, have, who are sinless, but, but people who've, who, whose sins have been forgiven. And if you look at the way David ends Psalm 32, after describing how he's been forgiven, he, 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 he describes, he, what does he say in verse 11, Psalm 32? Be glad and, and rejoice, you righteous ones. Righteousness isn't pretending you're not a sinner. It isn't trying to minimize all of our wrongdoings. It isn't trying to relativize the ways we fall short with someone worse than you. No, the righteous are those, look at verse 3, um, or verse 2, the righteous ones are those in whose spirit there is no deceit. See, in order to receive a righteousness from God, we must be honest about about who we actually are when we confess our transgressions. See, when we confess our sins, verse 5 of chapter 32, Psalm 32 says, um, I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. See, when, when we confess our sins, that's when God makes us righteous. That's when he fills our heart with the kind of joy that, that makes you want to sing to him. And, and, and that praise, uh, in, in verse 1, uh, the psalmist says, is, is becoming to the upright, verse 1. Praise is becoming to the upright. It's, it's fitting. It's, it's appropriate. If you've been forgiven by God, you know that, that it's only appropriate then that you sing for joy and praise. If you know that everything you have is because of God's grace, then isn't praise the most, the most, important, the most appropriate response? Because, because believers have turned their backs on God because they've done that. They, they just don't know how wonderful our Lord is. So, but, but we don't have that kind of excuse. Verse 2 says praise is giving thanks to God. A praise is, is, is singing to, with instruments. It's playing those instruments skillfully, verse 3. 
Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully, verse 3, with a, with a loud shout. We, we don't need to be professional musicians in order to praise him, but, but in a corporate setting, we are to give our very best in musicianship. We are, we are singing to the king of kings, after all. Verse 3, uh, the psalmist says, uh, play, skillfully, play skillfully with a, with a loud shout. Sing loudly. Sing like you mean it. This past week, I was at my son's Christmas concert in his kindergarten class for the record. Did very, very good. Excellent. It was excellent. First grade class, really good. But as it kind of get, got, uh, as the grades got, get, kept getting higher, uh, you would expect the volume to increase correspondingly, but if the volume kept getting lower. And you had a group of fifth graders and sixth graders just kind of whispering these Christmas songs. <laughs> and I wanted to say, you know, come on, guys, little, a little louder. Sing like you mean it. Pretend like you mean it. We need to, we need to sing like, like we know we've been forgiven. Whispering praise songs to God because we're embarrassed about our voice just shows that we're, we're, we're focused on the wrong person. It doesn't matter if you don't sing well. Sing, shout. Sing loudly like you mean it. Charles Spurgeon said, Men shout at the sight of their kings. Shall we offer no loud hosannas to the son of David? But it's the beginning of verse 3 that, that I want to focus on. The psalmist says, Sing to him a, a new song. Sing to him a new song. Every time these two words are used together, a new and song, in the Old Testament, they're used in the context of eschatological judgment, eschatological culmination. Go to Psalm 96 and to, to show you what I mean. Psalm 96. How does uh, Psalm 96 begin? Verse 1, uh, sing to Yahweh a new song. How does Psalm 96 end? Verse 3, 13, before Yahweh, for he is coming for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in, in, in righteousness. Go to Psalm 98. Psalm 98, you see that those two words together again. Psalm 98, verse 1. Sing to Yahweh a, a, a new song. Look at how uh, Psalm 98 ends. Before Yahweh, for he is coming to judge the earth. The words new song is used only two times in the New Testament, both times in the book of Revelation. The writer of Revelation, John, he picks up on how the word is used in the Old Testament, and then he uses it the same, in the same context in, in end-time judgment, right before the Lord begins to open each of the seven seals of judgment one by one. In, in Re Revelation 5, John writes about writes this about the 24 elders before the throne in Revelation 5, 9, and 10. I quote, and they sang a, a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So there's this there's eschatological judgment, and there's the, 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 the bringing in of the kingdom, and, and Christ reign upon the earth with his people. 
And so Psalm 33 is a, is a forward-looking psalm into the future. It, its focus is on the end when God fulfills all of his promises to his people. It, this is a, is a new psalm because the future is, is breaking into the present as the psalmist praises God now. When Christ returns, we're going to sing a new song. Today, our, some of us, our songs can be filled with lament and sorrow, and, and rightfully so, but when Christ returns, there will be no more sad songs to sing. It'll be a new song. Today, our hearts often struggle with coldness and, and indifference as we, as we lift up praise songs to him, but in the future, it'll be a new song. There'll never be a second in eternity when our worship is, isn't anything but the perfect fullness of joy. Now we're often distracted by our thoughts about things we have to get done. We're distracted by imperfect notes and crying babies and, 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 uh, and cars driving by, but in the end, it, it will be a new song. In the new heavens and the new earth, there won't be a single stray, renegade thought, not an instance of boredom, no, no person in front of you to distract you because everybody else around you will be praising the Lamb of God in the same way you are. The psalmist's point in verse 3 is to, is to th- sing that, that new song today. Let future glory and the promises of God infuse your present circumstances. If we, if we let our present situation determine our sincerity of worship, we will never ride a, a roller coaster of highs and lows. Don't let your praise to God be shackled and, and constrained by the, the built-in irregularities of a sin-fallen world. That's an old song. That's an old song. Sing a new song. Next, in verses 4 and 5, we consider how the opening call to praise in verses 1 through 3 is, is grounded in the, in, the, in the character of God revealed in his word. Our praise is grounded in the, in the character of God revealed in his word. Point number 2, found in verses 4 and 5, praise and worship is anchored in the character of God revealed in his word. Brothers and sisters, there is never a day when we don't have 10,000 reasons to praise God. Amen? And when we forget all those reasons, all we have to do is open the pages of Scripture to remind ourselves just one reason, just two reasons. And, and we start with the first reason at the beginning of verse for the word of Yahweh is upright. The word of Yahweh is upright. Uh, yashar in the Hebrew. The same word is found to describe scripture in Psalm 19 verse 8. When David says the precepts of Yahweh are right. Or the, the precepts of, of Yahweh are yashar. The, the word means to conform with God's holy character. Or to be consistent with who God is. In other words, to spend time in God's word is to spend time with God himself. When you read scripture, the words contained therein reveal God's glorious character. That's how speech works. Your words reveal who you are. My, my words reveal who I am. The, the more you get to know me, the more you hear me talk and hear what I say to you in the context of a personal relationship, the more you will know what kind of person I am. That's how it works with God's word as well. When you open up God's word, when you read God's word, when you hear God's word preached, one of the first things you will learn, the psalmist says, is is that he does all that he does, he does in faithfulness, verse 4. For the word of Yahweh is upright and, and all his work is done in faithfulness. 
what he says he will do. He, he, he will certainly do. The promises that he makes, he will certainly keep. Charles Spurgeon comments on verse 4, God writes with a pen that never blots. He speaks with a tongue that never slips, and he acts with a hand which never fails. End quote. This is our God. This is our God. We get the great and unique privilege of worshiping. Verse 5 says that, that God loves righteousness and justice. Verse 5 says also that the, that the earth is also full of the loving kindness of Yahweh. The word loving kindness in the, in the Old Testament, and you see it over and over, is, is the Old Testament word for grace. The Apostle John, when he quotes from the Old Testament, and he says uh, grace and truth, he's quoting from the Old Testament that says loving kindness and truth. So, so John is thinking, okay, I'm going to replace loving kindness with a, some, some, with a Greek word, and he uses the word grace. In, in other words, uh, here, the psalmist is saying God is righteous and he is gracious. And, and there's no contradiction in holding these two attributes together in one verse. Every time I, I, I witness to a, a, somebody who's Muslim, I say, um, friend, uh, I mean no disrespect, but this is the problem with Islam there's a contradiction in your God. Because you say he's righteous, but you also say he's merciful. But this is the problem. In order to get into heaven, according to, to, your, uh, according to the Quran, your, your good deeds have to, to outweigh your bad deeds. And so, yes, I get it that, that according to the Quran, that, that if, he, if, he, if he lets you into heaven based on your good deeds, yes, he is merciful, but what does he do about the bad deeds? What does he do about those? To just, to just forget about them, just to let them go, it shows he's not just, he's not righteous. And therefore, he's not great, and he's not perfect. For 20 years, I've asked, I said, Get, come back with me with an answer. This past Thursday, I said the same thing to the guy. For 20 years, nobody's answered the question. There's a contradiction, but not so in the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Christ was dying on the cross, God's righteousness was being displayed by judging his son for our sins, but his, his grace was also shining forth at the cross by the means of, of, of this is how sinners are forgiven and, and given eternal life. Grace and, and mercy is being displayed at the cross. If you believe in the cross, you can be forgiven. God will be gracious to you. To you. But God's righteousness is also being displayed as he, as he pours out his just anger for our sin. At the cross, we see righteousness and grace in, in perfect harmony. And that's what, the, that's what this psalmist says in verse 5. He's both righteous and he is gracious. On a lesser note, whether people know it or not, we all experience God's righteousness every day. God's law is written on the conscious of, consciences of men. We all have a sense of right and wrong. Every culture and civilization knows that murder is evil and kindness is good. But yes, and because of our sin, our moral code is warped beyond imagination. But there's always a, a baseline that no matter how depraved somebody gets, we can all agree that, 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 that Hitler was evil. Even when somebody tells me, no, 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 I don't believe in good and evil, I, I say, well, hey, hey, friend, I, I don't think you believe that. Trust me, if I, if, I, if I took your wallet right now and ran away, you would, you would scream, this is unjust, and you would mean it. 
Whether we refuse to acknowledge it or not, we all, Christian and non-Christian alike, experience the grace of God every day when we indulge in the blessings of creation. Verse 5, the psalmist says, the, the earth is full of the loving kindness of Yahweh. The earth is full of the, of the grace of Yahweh. Whenever you take your family to the beach and play with your kids in the ocean, splashing in the water under a pale blue sky, that's the gift of God's grace we do not deserve. Whenever you drive through an autumn forest mesmerized by the beauty of a kaleidoscope of fall colors, that's a, that's a gift of God's grace that you and I don't deserve. deserve the, the earth, the earth is full of the, the, the grace of Yahweh. It is full of the, the loving kindness of Yahweh, whether you see it or not. Charles Spurgeon says again, Come hither, astronomers, geologists, naturalists, botanists, chemists, Miners, yea, all of you who, who study the works of God, for all your truthful stories confirm this declaration. From the midge and the sunbeam to Leviathan and the ocean, all creatures own the, the bounty of the Creator. Even the pathless desert blazes with some undiscovered mercy, and the, and the caverns of ocean conceal the treasures of love. Earth might have been as full of terror as of grace, but instead thereof it, it teems and, and overflows with kindness. He who cannot see it and yet lives in it as the fish lives in the water deserves to die. If earth be full of mercy, what must heaven be where goodness concentrates its beams? Brothers and sisters, there's never a, an hour in a day when we don't have 10,000 reasons to praise God. The call to praise God in verses 1 through 3 is, is grounded in the character of God revealed in his word as we just considered in verses 4 and 5. And next in verses 6 and 7, the, the call to praise God in verses 1 through 3 is, is rooted in the power of, of his word in creation. Point number three, praise is rooted in the power of God's word in, in creation. Verses 6 and 7, the psalmist writes, by the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He lays up the deeps and storehouses. Verse, verse 5 reminded us of the grace of God in creation. And verses 6 and 7 uh, urge us to behold the power of God in creation. The heavens, the sun, the moon, the sky, the universe, all their host, all the billions and billions of stars were made by the word of Yahweh, by the breath of his mouth. Just a word. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Instantly. He didn't take existing material to create the universe like out of some cosmic uh, silly putty. No, it was out of nothing. Ex nihilo. There was nothing, and then there was the, the universe because of a single word. That's how powerful God's word is. One commentator said that it is far easier for God to cre create and ma maintain all the universe by the breath of his mouth than it is for us to tinkle, take a single breath with our mouth. In verse 7, the psalmist says he gathers the waters of the sea as a, as a heap. He, this is language from Exodus 15, right? When, the, when God parted the waters, he rose the waters on one side on the other like you would stack a, a stack of newspapers on both sides. This language in verse 7 is borrowed from Exodus 15.8. It was the victory song of Moses and Israel when they 
right after they walked through the Red Sea when God decimated all of Pharaoh's army when they tried to follow Israel into the sea. God, he, he could have just brought Israel through the sea and then closed the, the walls of the water right before Pharaoh's armies could follow Israel. He could have done that, but no, God let all of Pharaoh's soldiers go into the middle of the ocean in order to destroy all of them. And this was a creation power being displayed in Exodus. And the point that God was making was that he wasn't just delivering his people from evil, he was totally destroying evil while he delivered his people. But the psalmist here adds one more detail to that momentous event in Exodus, and it's this, God did it with just a word. Just a word. See, the victory of God in Exodus, Exodus was a glimpse of the future when the final exodus of God's people happens. When God rescues his people from bondage one last time, God will also destroy evil completely and forever. This is what Psalm 33 is, is looking forward to. So how should, we, how should the, the world respond to the character of God revealed in his word? How should the, word, the, the world respond to the, to, the, to the power of God's word in creation? Well, verses 8 and 9 tell us, and this leads us to point number 4. Point number 4, because of God's character and power, let all the world fear Yahweh. Because of God's character and power, let all the world fear Yahweh. Verse 8 and 9, let, let all the earth fear Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it was. He commanded it and it stood. When God created the, the world and the universe, it was effortless. When, when God decimated the, 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 the world's first greatest uh, superpower in the Red Sea, he didn't lift a finger to do it. It was, it was by a word. And by way of contrast, my words, my words can't even get my two-year-old to stop putting the remote control in his mouth. Joel, don't take it out. He won't listen to your words either. Your words are just as powerless. But God's word is so powerful, it speaks into the void, and all creation springs into being by the power of his voice. The greatest fighting force in the world, led by Pharaoh, was decimated by the, by the breath of his, a single breath of God's mouth. He just breathed and powerful warriors wilted like flowers under a blazing summer sun. And all this is meant to see how small we are in comparison to Yahweh. You can't worship God rightly if you think you're bigger than God, better than God, smarter than God, or, or, more, or, or more intelligent than God. No, friends. We must humble ourselves. We move to verses 10 through 12 now, and, and, and verses 10 through 12 stand at the center of the psalm. Psalm 33 is a chiasm where the center of the text is the main point of the entire psalm with matching concentric circles before verses 10 through 12 and after verses 10 through 12 flowing out from this central point being made in verses 10 through 12. Point number five in the, in the main point of the psalm is the counsel of Yahweh stands forever. Verse 10, Yahweh nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the thoughts of the people. 
The counsel of Yahweh stands forever, the thoughts of his heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. To, to speak of nature's obedient glory as we did in verses 6 through 9 is to be reminded, reminded of man's blatant, blatant defiance as we see in verse 10. The word of man in verse 10 is, is pitched against the word of God in verse 11. The, the same words, a counsel and thoughts in verse 10 is, is also found in verse 11. The counsel and thoughts of Yahweh. The counsel and thoughts of nations and, and peoples are versus the counsel and thoughts of, of our God. But there's a big difference between the two. The counsel of the nations, verse 10, the thoughts of the people, verse 10, their laws, their rules, their, their, their ethical systems, their worldviews, their morality, their slogans, their false religions, their plans, their goals. God nullifies, he says. He, he frustrates. They're bound to lose. They're, sooner or later, it will hit a brick wall of God's sovereign power. You see, when we pursue the course of the world's instructions and their counsel and their thoughts with respect to faith and worship and morality and ethics, God responds with built-in consequences, human misery and chaos, frustration, perpetual failure, failure, and eventually eternal judgment. Why? Because, verse 11, his counsel stands forever. The counsel of, of God, the counsel of the Lord, the counsel of Yahweh, verse 11, stands forever. His plans for the world will infallibly come to pass. His instructions that he gives about how we should live in this world will never fail. We can trust God's word from generation to generation. See, on my deathbed, I can, I can give this Bible to my son, and, and he can give it to his children, and, and their children can give it to their children, and their children to their children. And no matter how much the world changes, the Word of God, accompanied by re regeneration and saving faith, will produce the same glorious Christ-likeness for thousands and thousands of generations. There's one more contrast the psalmist makes in these verses, and that's the, the nation's plural, verse 10, versus the, nation's versus the nation's singular in verse 12. There's the, the nation scheming against God in verse 10, and then, then there's the nation singular in verse 12 that belongs to God. Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh. That nation is Israel, of course. They are the people, verse 12, who he has chosen for his own inheritance. There are only two groups of people in the world that God has chosen to bless in history. The nation Israel and the, and the New Testament church of Jesus Christ. Truly blessed people belong in a covenant relationship with him. Truly blessed people submit to the counsel of Yahweh instead of the counsel of the nations. Truly blessed people embrace the thoughts of God's heart revealed in scripture instead of the human-centered uh, thoughts of society, society's latest fads. God's people are blessed precisely because God has counseled them, because he has revealed to them the truth about the world's beginning and, and final destiny, because we, we, but, but, but most of all, we're blessed as the church ultimately because he has chosen us. Verse 12. 
All of, us, all of us here who know the Lord Jesus Christ know him because before time began, before you had done anything, God, by his grace predestined, he foreknew, he chose you to be a part of his family by adoption. It was nothing in you that he saw that compelled him to do that. It was nothing that you did that influenced him to save you. God chose you because of the, as we read in Ephesians 1 today, by the good pleasure of his will, it pleased him to do so and so he chose you to the praise of the glory of his grace brothers and sisters there's never a minute there's never a minute in, in an hour in a day when we don't have 10,000 reasons to praise God amen see the day that the church is waiting for is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ this is what Israel is waiting for when God will judge a rebellious humanity, when he will rescue his people from the presence of sin still remaining in our own hearts and from the evil around us that still brings us so much suffering. The next verses describe that day. The next verses describe how nothing we can do in our own strength can, can save us from what's coming. Point number six, the, fu the futility of human strength under the judgment of God. The futility of human strength under the judgment of God, verses 13 through 17. The fear of Yahweh that was called for in verses 8 and 9, when he said, let all the earth fear in Yahweh, is now matched and further motivated by the assertion that Yahweh watches on all men in verses 13 and 14. Notice the correspondence in verse 18. Let all the earth fear Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And now we see God's omniscient gaze in verses 13 and 14. And, and he, he uses that, that word. He, he looks from heaven. He, he sees all the sons of men from the place of his habitation. He gazes on, on all the inhabitants of the earth. He, he who forms the hearts of them all. He who, he who understands all their works. In other words, there will be no errors in his judgment. No one will get away with anything. No one will slip through the cracks of divine justice. There's going to be no secret stuff that, that escapes his notice. What happens in Vegas will not stay in Vegas. At some point, sooner or later, all will be held accountable for what they are and what they do. Uh, Yahweh doesn't just frustrate and hinder nations in the course of history. He will assess and judge all when his son returns. The concentric circle from the middle point of the psalm in verses 10 through 12 continues and, and expands in verses 15 through 17, the one who made the heavens and controls the seas in verse, verses 6 and 7, he also forms the heart in verse 15. He forms the heart of them all. God knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your heart and mind deeper and wider than you know your own heart. He sees your motives as clear as daylight, and, and it's because he's formed your heart. It's because he... He's the designer of your heart. That means that all your works, all that you do that begins in the art, he understands completely. You see, when you have a problem with, with a car or, or an appliance, you call the, the manufacturer, right? The, the manufacturer can find the issue because the manufacturer designed the product. They've built the product piece by piece. They've 
analyzed and tested the product, their knowledge of their own product vastly supersedes your own. And in the same way, if you think you're a good person, I tell you, it might be wiser to trust the designer. It might be wiser to trust the manufacturer of your own heart and soul and body more than yourself. I'm not telling you that you're a sinner. I don't know what's in your heart. I'm just telling you what God told me. And, and, and I trust him because, because I know he's your designer. I know he's your manufacturer. Let me tell you what he told you. He told you that, that if you never put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're a sinner. He told me to tell you that. God says that if you, you, never, you never put your faith in Christ, he says that the penalty for sin is eternal death and that no one can overcome Yahweh's judgment for the unrepentant sinner. No one, nobody can avoid his justice. Not even a king. Not even a king, verse 16. The king is not saved by a mighty ar army. Even a king who has a mighty army of many men cannot escape God's judgment. Verse 16. The warrior is not delivered by great strength. The, the strongest warrior cannot overpower him who sits on a white horse with an army clothed in fine linen, white and clean. No horseman can trample over Christ's army on the strongest horse. Verse 17. A horse is a, is a false hope for salvation. Don't put your, put your trust in a horse. Nor does it provide escape to anyone by its great strength. It, it cannot overcome Christ's army. It cannot run. It cannot outpace the hound of heaven. In Revelation 19, at the end of time, it says that, that all, of, all of the world's armies gather together and, and they mount up in an attempt to defeat the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and if you know Revelation 19, is there a long protracted war? Is there? No, Revelation 19 says it just, it, it ends. It ends instantly. There's no battle. And the sword that Christ uses to end this war in an instant, John, the Apostle John says, is the sharp sword of his word. Just a word. There is no escaping Yahweh's justice. And the psalmist's every intention at this point is, is to be terrifying. He wants us to know that God has seen our every offense. That, that we have offended a holy God whose almighty power has been demonstrated by the way he spoke the world into being. We have disobeyed the word of the one whose word made the world. And so the last question remains, if there's nothing we can do in our own strength to save ourselves from God's justice, if even a king with the great army, even a mighty warrior, even with, with strong and fast uh, horses, if, if that can't even escape God's just, justice, is there any hope? Is there any hope for sinners like you and me? And it's, this, it's at this point the psalmist provides a doorway to salvation. And what we learn in verses 18 through 22 is this, if we are to be saved from the word of justice, our sins deserve, God must do everything to save us. God must do everything to save us. And our last point is, is found in verses 18 through 22. Salvation is found in God's grace alone. Verse 18, behold, the eye of Yahweh is on those who fear him and those who wait for his loving kindness. He looks at all the world, he sees sinners rebelling against him, but he also looks for those 
who what? Wait for his loving kindness. That's the, as I said earlier, that's the, the Old Testament term for grace. He's looking for those who have put their trust in God's grace. They're waiting for his grace because they trust in his grace. As we wait for the return of the Lord, our hope is not in our own strength. It's not in an army that we have amassed to fight against him. It can't, can't be in our own good works or morality. Our, our, our only hope, our only hope is, is God's grace. Look at verse 22. Let your loving kindness, let your grace, O Yahweh, be upon us as we wait for you. Lord, we recognize the power of your word. We recognize that no army can save us. And so all our hope, all that we can do is, is oh, let your grace fall upon us. We wait for you. We wait for your grace as we trust in your grace. There's no other hope. We wait for undeserved grace. In these last verses in 18 through 22, all the attention is on Yahweh. It's all on him and what, what he did and what he does. And, and his eye is on, on, on the one whose eye is on him. The eye of Yahweh is on those who fear him who depend on him, who trust him, who love him, who respect him. Verse 20, he is our help. God doesn't help those who help themselves. He helps those who turn to him for help. God is our shield. He is our defender. We, we don't defend ourselves. We lean on him who defends us. See, Psalm 33 began with a call to worship, and it ends with the basic constituent parts of worship. Worship is much more than an emotion. The heart of worship is comprised of character qualities. Character qualities that make up the heart to worship Yahweh is to fear Yahweh. It's to wait for him with a patient heart. Worship is a full dependence on his grace. Worship is filled with joy because we trust in him. See, if you needed a praise team or instruments or, or a group of people to worship God, you could only worship him a, a day or two out of the week. But if, if God is sanctifying you by his spirit and, and if God is, is strengthening your heart with his word, then there isn't a second, in a minute, in an hour in a day when we don't have 10,000 reasons to praise his name. Amen? Brothers and sisters, don't spend all your time trying to hide from suffering. Don't devote all your energy and resources trying to shelter yourself from the hardships of life. Don't, don't waste all your time thinking about how you can live a pain-free life or the, or the longest life possible. No, no, think of, store up, memorize, study, listen, read. One more reason to praise God in the midst of suffering and hardship. Don't run away from persecution. Think of one more reason to praise God when you're in prison for the gospel. Don't worry about a promotion you didn't get, a job you lost. Think of one more reason to praise God, even if God takes away every penny you have. Don't waste all your time figuring out how you'll never catch cancer. No, think of one more reason to praise God when you have a few weeks to live. Because a life of worship is not about being afraid. It's not about avoiding hard things. It's not about hiding from anyone. It's not about complaining and, and feeling sorry for ourselves. No, a, a life of worship is about coming up with just one more reason 
to praise God until you have 10,000 reasons to praise God every hour of the day, every day of the year, every year of your life as we wait patiently for his return. The psalm has given us a few reasons, hasn't it? Let's pray.